Well, amen to that. Isn't it good to know we have an anchor that's strong, first family? Well, for some of you it is anyway. Praise the Lord just the same. What a joy it is to be with you, my friends, and what a blessing it is to hear from our wonderful orchestra and from Jeff and our senior adult choir, Joyful Sound. We bless each of you for your service and ministry. Thank you, guys. Let's talk about last night. Maybe you didn't see it. Some of you probably even went to bed. But there was a tremendous game played last night. Ohio State at Notre Dame. It had been a hard-fought game back and forth all night long, and it came down to one play. There was a four-point lead for Notre Dame, the home team. And everybody's on their feet. Everybody holding their breath. The band ready to play the victory song. Only three seconds remain. Ohio State has the ball. They are gathered near the end zone on the three-yard line. All they need is just that little bit, and they'll win the game. What will happen? The whole place draws an uneasy breath, hoping that the home team will put it through. But no! The Ohio State kid breaks through the line and scores the winning touchdown. Their whole team goes crazy while the rest of the stadium stands there like this. Watching it with my son, that was one of the first times that he's ever really noticed that about how things play out. And I thought to myself, what if they had known before the game started this is the way it would play out? What if they'd known before? You see, I have some ball games on DVD. And one of my favorite things about those ball games on DVD, I know how they come out. And so when I put that disc into the machine to play it, I sit back and I put my feet up and I cross my arms, drinking a Dr. Pepper and enjoying every second. Because no matter what happens in the game, get this, I know how it comes out. Did you get that? Your team may not be mine, and that's okay. You can be wrong, and that's fine. <laughs> but I want to tell you, friends, when we open the Word of God to Exodus 17, we have an opportunity to know how the battle comes out. Not just for the people of Israel, but for all of us. You see, in the section my friend Flo read just a moment ago, in verse 15, I want you to see it again, maybe even underline it. The Lord gives us a statement about who he is. Let me tell you, it's something we need to hear today, and that's why I brought it to you. It has nothing to do with football games or basketball games or any other kind of game. It has nothing to do with business deals. It has nothing to do with schoolwork. It has everything to do with our spiritual qualities. It has everything to do with God carrying us through to the end. See it in verse 15, right there at the end. The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. Some of your translations may say, The Lord is my victory. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my secure place. It all stems from the same word, believe it or not. In our language, that's 
words that are very far apart, but etymologically they belong to the same family in Hebrew, and that's why we choose this. The Lord is my banner. Now, when we think of the word banner, we think of the big flag. We think of something that stands over us, and indeed that's one of the, the understandings of that. But I want you to recognize banner doesn't have to mean flag. We're going to end with that in a little while. Hang in there with me. I want us to see this story, though, because it has something that we need to hear. It starts with this. Victory comes by the power of God. Victory comes by the power of God. Before we do anything else, I want us to stop and thank God for that. Pray with me, won't you? So today, Lord Jesus, we have gathered as people who need your victory. Not for our businesses, not for our ball games, but for our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you won that victory for us on the cross. Once and for all, that we know that you, in your mercy and your kindness, knew exactly what we needed most of all, and that victory really does come by your power. So in this time we'll share together today, I pray you would remind us of that, that you would strengthen us, Lord, for the task that you've put before us, for the journey that we're walking and for the opportunity you've given us to serve you day by day. We live in a place and a time and a culture, Lord, that doesn't think that you are all that powerful. Thank you that they're wrong and that victory comes with you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, I want us to take a look at this story one more time. And I want you to see God's odd battle plan. The first verse that we read, verse 8, recognizes the enemy and who he is. Amalek, the enemy of God. These are the people that sought to undermine, undermine the work of God and to, in essence, destroy the people of God. Have you ever known someone like that? Yes, yes, you have. This is Satan's battle plan from the beginning. He wants nothing more than to destroy you. He wants to wipe you out. He wants to take every essence of godliness away from you. He wants to destroy you. And let's make sure we understand that, friends, because just like the Malachites, he doesn't play fair. The Malachites, they were consistent enemies of God. We find them throughout the Old Testament. And they were the ones who were fighting with the people of God at Rephidim on this particular day. Moses gets a word from God. And he brings Joshua, his commander, in and says, choose for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. This same one that in Exodus 3 and 4 had been turned into a serpent and then made straight again. The same one that Moses held out over the Red Sea and saw it part before him. This same staff that he'd used to strike the rock and get water from. The same staff that he'd used to touch the rock and honey had flowed from it. The same staff who God had used over and over and over again, not because it was a special stick, but because the power of God was in Moses' heart. He wanted to teach the people something. And indeed, this was the moment that he would choose to do it. 
See verse 10. So Joseph and Moses did. I'm sorry, let me try again. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So far we have the battle plan. Moses sitting high on the hill watching over everything, Joshua and the people fighting them in the valley. And now things get a little strange. Verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Friends, this comes to an odd battle plan. It's as if God is saying, if you'll raise your hands in praise to me, if you'll raise your hands in utter dependence, then victory is sure to be yours. But if you lower them to act on your own behalf, then victory will not be yours. Oh, <laughs> this is a difficult word, friends, for us Baptists. Can we say this for a moment? And it's not just Baptists. I was at a luncheon this week with the pastor at First Methodist and First Presbyterian and Golf Course Road Church. We get together, and some of you have caught us on those luncheons and been wondering what we talked about in our meetings. Well, let's just be honest and say we talk about you most of all, and that's okay. But mostly what we do is we pray together and we talk about how the Lord might use our churches. We'll talk more about our conversations in days to come. Let's say this for now. One of the things that all of us would like to see is you engage with the spirit and power of God. That much you can be sure of. And one way that I do that, I'm not necessarily saying everybody has to, is when the spirit moves in my heart and mind, I raise my hand. Now, you might feel uncomfortable with that. Hey, it's okay if you do. Some of you do what we call the, the Baptist raise, where it gets right here where you don't want to get too spiritual, but the Spirit won't let you leave them down at your side. Some of you do the pocket thing, where you stick them in your pockets for fear that the Spirit of God will want you to lift your hands. And so you wind up doing stuff like that. Can I encourage you today to recognize there is power. There is power when you let a physical expression come in the, in, through the spiritual realities. When God moves you, don't be afraid to raise your hands. I was always told in school, when you know the, hand, you know the answer, raise your hand. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a powerful thing to say, thank you, God. My dependence is upon you. Now, let's be clear. When we are being held up by a robber, what does he want you to do? He wants you to hold up your hands, right? That way you show, he, you're showing him or her that you have no threat to him. You are at his mercy. Can I offer you this word today? When we lift our hands to God, we're saying the same thing to him. Aaron, her. We don't know exactly why they went up on the hill with Moses, but we know this. They went with him. Because God had a plan for them, too. Moses' job was to keep his hands raised. But what happens when he gets tired? This is why God puts us together, friends. They held his hands up. One on one side and one on the other. 
When Moses got tired, they sat him down on a rock and held his hands up for him. Can I tell you today, my friends, this focuses on the difference between our battle plan and God's battle plan. Let's take a look at those two together, shall we? Our battle plan focuses on our abilities to fight. It causes us to say, what exactly can I do? What capacity do I have? And how might I, in God's wisdom, use what I have? God's battle plan is very different than that. God's battle plan does not focus on our ability. It focuses on his abilities. Who is he? What has he told me to do? How is it that I can trust him in a whole new way? It takes all the focus off of what we have, what we are, and focuses all that energy on him. After all, it's his battle to fight. Here's a second difference. Our battle plan focuses on our resources. We've certainly seen that with our friends in Ukraine. Man, those are a lot of conversations about a lot of different weapons. And I understand why. What's happened there is tragic, even absurd. I'm still praying for Putin to withdraw his forces and retreat. I've been told that I'm foolish in my optimism, but I believe we have a great God. He does not depend on our resources. Why? Because his battle plan focuses on his resources. And let me tell you, friends, they're limitless. Let me say that one more time. Our God's resources are limitless. Which would you rather do? Focus on your resources or his? Our battle plan focuses on our strategies. How can we put things together in such a way that allows us the best opportunity for success? It focuses on our ingenuity, our capacity. What is it that we have at our disposal, putting all these other pieces together, to bring victory. Well, let me tell you, friends, God's better plan is not focused on strategy. It's focused on his victory. He's already won. He's already won. The battle belongs to the Lord. The word says that over and over and over again. So why is it then, why is it that we get so stressed Why do we get so anxious? Why are we so nervous? Because we're focused on our battle plan. We think somehow God needs us to do his will, to accomplish his purposes. I want to remind you of something we've said over and over again. Our God chooses to use us, but he does not need us. It is because of his transcendent love for us that he engages us at all. No doubt to me, at least, the Lord could use this desk at least as well, if not better than me, to accomplish proclaiming his word this morning. He's spoken through a donkey before. You can take that how you like. God does not need me. And yet one of the greatest privileges I have is that God chooses to use me just like he does you. It's not about me, it's about him. Now let's be clear. 
when we get to verse 13, we see victory on the horizon. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I submit to you today, though, the victory wasn't in the swords. It was in the obedience of the Lord. When we submitted ourselves to the Lord, when we gave ourselves to him, when we said, okay, we'll do it your way, God, instead of ours, then an amazing thing happens. Victory arrives. So that brings us to our responsibilities. If we want that, then what do we do? How do we respond to that? I want to give you a couple of things that you can take home with you. And I want us to recognize it for what it is. It's a strategy, but we as humans need something to hold on to. This is how I believe you can find victory, the victory God meant for you to have. It starts here. Our responsibility as being in the army it starts with recognizing our enemy. Satan is the ruler of this world. I tell you today, my friends, I've been really grieved at what I've seen around us nationally, as a, a world. I've been really grieved at the polarization that I see, even between Christians. Well, they don't think like I do. They don't think like I do, and so they must inherently be wrong. They must be not only wrong, but evil. This, friends, is where we live as a culture right now. If I disagree with somebody, I must either hate them or be afraid of them. In our culture's views, we have no right to disagreement on principle basis. We either hate them or we're afraid of them. Friends, recognize what's happening here. Satan is doing his work seeking to destroy. Here's what I mean. We can focus on the wrong things and find ourselves confused, find ourselves distracted, find ourselves like those poor Notre Dame fans standing there last night looking so forlorn. Could it be that we have focused on the wrong things when all the while God says, trust me and walk with me and let me work out the details? I want to encourage you today to recognize some things are important and some things are critical and some things are central to our mission. What, I'm, what do you mean, Darren? Here's what I mean. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all that is. That's central. There is no other way to salvation. That's central. The word of God doesn't change, and it is sufficient all by itself. That's central. How I understand some parts of it, like about baptism and the Lord's Supper, that's not. That's why I can go to that lunch with my brother pastors and sit down and enjoy a good meal with them and they with me. Think of it this way. Some of you are Astro fans. We still let you come to church here. That's a secondary issue, isn't it? Everybody knows God loves the Rangers, isn't that right? I would hope it's true. 
That's a silly way of saying it, but I hope you understand what I mean. Let's recognize what's really happening around us. Satan is seeking to undo us and using the weapons of fear, anger, and polarization to accomplish it. Worse than that, we buy in. And we say, yeah, that's right, let's get angry with them. I want to encourage you, friends, recognize that Satan is the one behind this. He is the ruler of the world. Don't let him drag you down. I want us also to recognize the enemy's strategy. If we're going to be in the army, let's recognize what our enemy is doing. Let's recognize our enemy's strategy, and it starts with diluting God's word. When we recognize this, we start in Genesis 3. The serpent comes to Eve and says this, Did God really say? He's still using that. Did God really say? I've lost count of how many people have reached out to me and said, Darren, I know you've said these things are inherently true and these other things are inherently false, but is that just your opinion or God's word? While that's a fair question, here's the benefit we have of the word of the Lord. You can read it for yourself. It is available for you, and let me pause here and say this. The reason so many people get deceived is because we don't know what the Bible says. We don't know what the Bible says. We allow ourselves to be duped. I had some knock on my door just this week. They came to my home and they presented themselves as missionaries. Aha. Uh -huh. Missionaries offering lies. But if you don't know the word of God, if you don't know they are perpetrating falsehoods, then it might be that you get trapped too. How do I know they're wrong? Because what they are teaching does not line up with the word of God. And if it doesn't line up with the word of God, it is diluting the word of God. Case in point, Jesus is a good teacher. Either Jesus Christ is who he claims to be or he's a lunatic. There's no in-between. Please save me this notion of Jesus being a fine and moral teacher. He's either the king of the universe and thus worthy of all of our worship or he's a lunatic. But if he's the king of the universe, then what he said about coming back and ruling and reigning and judging all of us has to take effect and we better pay attention to it. If he's a lunatic, we can safely ignore him. Another one. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be in Christ to do good. Absolutely true. You do not have to be a Christian to do good. People can live moral lives without ever encountering the Word of God or the church, or for that matter, God himself. But you were not made good, and that brings me to the third one. People are inherently good. Let me tell you, friends, it's just false. People are inherently wicked. Given the chance, they'll destroy themselves. We've seen it over and over again. Now, does that mean they don't deserve to be loved or don't deserve encouragement? They don't deserve to be treated fairly? No, 
No, I didn't say any of that. But it means that they need to be saved. And that the reason Jesus came in the first place is to deliver to them. When we dilute the word of God to make it more palatable or to meet our own agendas, then we're stealing it from those who desperately need it. And we're taking the example of Satan. Here's a second strategy. Use fear to discourage God's people. Using fear. Well, they won't listen to me if I tell them God's word. They won't listen if I tell them about Jesus. They'll think I'm weird. They won't like it. It'll put people off. Yeah, probably so. But I would rather take the chance on telling people about Jesus and have them reject him, even if they don't like me, than I would to let them go uncalled into eternity without Christ. If they blow past the stop sign, that's on them if they're in an accident. But let it be me that's waving it. Here's the third one. Stir controversy to distract from God's mission. Said another way, it means make sure there's always plenty of other things to talk about besides what God has called us to. Don't let these things happen to you, friends. So how can you emphasize the good then? Well, trust God has already won the victory. Trust that God has already won. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to let the word of God be diluted. You don't have to let controversy drag you down because God has already won. Here's three ways we know that's true. One, God has already given us provision through his word. This Bible that you carry around it tells you the truth. You don't have to take somebody else's word for it. You can study it for yourself. You can take the word of God, let it speak into your life each and every day. And when you do so, here's an amazing thing, you'll learn the sound of your commander's voice. A soldier knows his commander's voice. He knows what it sounds like because he's listened for it before. He's heard it and allowed it to direct him Here's the third piece to that. The church wins her battles through prayer. Prayer. It's not always as exciting as we'd like it to be, but it is necessary for us to touch the heart of God and have him touch ours. Now let's move to a practical element as we wrap things up. Our God's banner still stands over us. One of the temptations is to say, you know what, that was a long time ago, Darren. That doesn't really mean much to me now. After all, God hasn't given me the victory that he described there. I want to take you to a book we don't talk much about. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. It's an analogy, if you will. A story within a story about what you should expect, about God's love affair with you and what he intends to do for and in you. Here's what it says there. He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. This is your reality today. 
And I want to come back to what I said a little while ago. The word banner doesn't necessarily mean a flag. While Moses' altar features the word, the Lord as my banner, it's chiseled into the rock itself. So that's not a flag. The word banner doesn't have to mean a thing that flaps in the breeze. Oh, it can, and some of those banners move us when we see the, the stars and stripes raised uh, for a ceremonial event. It's moving. When we see the symbol of our homeland, when we've been away from home, we recognize what it means to have that banner over us. But I want to give you three things to go away from here with. As you're on your way to Sunday school, I want to give you three things that the banner also means. And let these things be things that when you look up, they are in your heart too. One, banner means refuge. The etymology of the term translated banner can mean refuge. A place to hide in a time of distress or crisis. It means we can settle our hearts and minds that Christ has already won and that we can find refuge in who he is. It is a place we can anchor ourselves and know that the anchor really does hold. The banner means refuge. It means a place of security and stability. It is exactly what Psalm 46 talks about. It is exactly what Acts chapter 2 talks about. It is life-changing. It is life-altering. It is, it is eternity-shifting. It, it calls us to recognize that we can find refuge there. Banner also means hope. In Numbers 21, we have a curious story. The people of Israel, these same ones who fought the battle in Exodus 17, they are further down the line now. And again, they've made the mistake of doubting God and wondering where is he in the midst of all this? Why hasn't he done what he said he would do? They grumble against God. They complain against him. And so God says, okay, I've warned you, I've warned you, I've warned you. Now it's time to take action. He sends deadly serpents among them to bite them. And those who were bitten, died. It's a sad thing. It's a sad thing. So into that moment, God says, I want to provide hope. So Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pole, and I want you to take a serpent and wrap it around that pole, and then raise it up and hold that pole up. The one who sees that will be saved. They will not die as a result of being bitten. Now that seems like an odd cure, but it worked. The vipers didn't go away. They were still there, biting people. But God had provided hope, a refuge, a place to find strength. And that brings us to the last thing. Banner means a place of victory. It may be unsettling for us to compare that serpent hung on a pole to Christ hung on the cross, and yet that's exactly what Moses was doing, a type of Christ. The victory was won, not because the serpent was so 
amazing or had some magical quality to it, but because God had provided it at just the right time. The victory was won on the cross, not because the cross was any particular type of wood, but because Christ had prepared to bring victory to us. Can I tell you today, friends, that banner, that banner that waves over us, it is nothing less than the cross of Christ. We stand in its shadow today. Our victory is secure not because we are so amazing or because God can't get along without us, but because in God's mercy, he has given us a place of victory through Christ on the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. This, this, friends, means that my hope, my victory, my refuge is in the cross. Nothing less than that. Now, perhaps you've forgotten that today. You've gotten distracted. It's easy to happen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard. Maybe you need to come to this altar and confess something that has distracted you and ask for a chance to start over. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for those who are distracted. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for our nation. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for your family. I want to open it up for you. This day is the one God has given you. Maybe, just maybe, you've never taken the step that Madeline did at the start of this service. You've never been baptized. It's a great day to come and get that conversation started. You know, in the second service, we're going to do baptism for a good friend of ours, Braxton. And Braxton is one who has walked a difficult road. Let me tell you, friends, the victory of Christ is for everyone, even you. You can find it, not through walking through baptismal waters, not through coming to this altar, but simply by calling on his name for his salvation. Today, you can do that. Let's pray together. So today, Lord Jesus, because of your goodness, because of who you are, we can choose to find victory. I know, Lord, that you can do that because you already have in my life. Today, it is our earnest plea that you would move in this place, that you would show your power here. And for those of us that may feel defeated, broken, weary, that you would remind us that you are still the banner that is over us. Guide us now through this invitation time, Lord. Compel us to decision. And thank you for your love for us, Jesus. As you name me, pray. Amen. So here's your chance to respond. We won't sing long, so this is your moment right here and right now. Stand with me as you come. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. 
Thank you, friends, for your time today, for coming to worship with us. It's been a joy to have you. As we go, I want to remind you, 5 o'clock, we'll have 5 of 5 right across the hallway at our chapel. I want to invite you back for continuing our conversation on the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 8 tonight talking about I am the light of the world. I hope you'll come be a part of that. We'll also have our church conference tonight. We want to invite you for that. Would you kindly also pray for Disciple Now? Next weekend when you come back, we'll be led by our guests from other parts of the state. It's going to be an exciting time. I know that you'll pray for our students. Pray for John David and Wayne as they lead us. Pray for Brian Pinson and I. We're leaving in the morning to be with our friends in Lebanon celebrating their 25th anniversary of ministry. I promise to bring you a full report when we return. We'll be back in place on October 8th. Let's conclude with a benediction as we go to Sunday school. Guide us now as we go from this place, Lord Jesus. Use our lives for your glory. Help us to lean into the victory that you've already won. And thank you, Lord Jesus, in advance for what you will do. Thank you, Lord, that you've put us together to walk this road as a family. And thank you for your love that it sustains us day by day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.